Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, look at the Gospel of Luke. The next uh, few Sundays before Christmas, as God allows, we'll gather. We'll look at the Christmas story from different angles and uh, different sides, and hopefully... um, Each one of those will be a tremendous blessing to you. I look forward to sharing it with you. So today, Luke chapter 2, you know this story really well. So does Lioness. And uh, I'm going to save that for another Sunday, but we are going to talk about that. In Luke chapter 2, a very familiar story of Jesus' birth, recorded by Luke the physician, as a matter of fact. So he tells us that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the entire world or empire should be taxed and registered for taxation. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. We don't think about it really much, but in those days, uh, the Roman Empire was obviously the dominant force in that part of the world. And uh, they had to fund themselves. They had to raise taxes. They had to do a census. They had to do accounting, uh, just like today. They were government regulations. You got to stand in line at the DMV, even though you don't want to, and many things like that. So this very, the story of Jesus' birth begins with this really mundane sort of, well, everybody's got to go get registered so you can pay taxes. I mean, that's just, is there anything more, can we all identify with this Sort of, we, we don't have any choice in that. We're just going to have to go do it. It's not like Joseph could say, well, I don't think we want to do that. You know, this isn't a good time for us. I mean, it's the Roman Empire. You're going to do what they tell you to do. So as the story begins, again, with this sort of very, listen, a very, very normal earthly experience that everybody goes through. And don't forget that when, 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 when God became flesh to dwell among us, he became one of us. He never lost or left his divinity in heaven, but he wrapped himself in humanity and not in some sort of princely humanity, listen, that none of us could identify with, but in the very kind of humanity we all identify with. So we begin with this very kind of unusual story here where the actual birth of the creator of the universe coming to walk among his creation begins with his Parents having to travel a long distance to get registered by the government. That's exactly what happened, so they could pay taxes. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's quite a distance, actually, because he was of the family line of David. He had to do that to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and who was pregnant at the time. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest rooms available for them. Father, speak to us through your word this morning in a very powerful way. The hardest thing about this story, Lord, is for us to hear it in a way that is not so wrapped up in nostalgia and Hollywood, and Hallmark, and everything else, Lord. Just help us as though we've never heard this before to hear it today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I must tell you, prior to this, Mary, who was a virgin, 
was visited by an angel who told her that she would conceive of the Holy Spirit. And uh, an angel also visited Joseph and told him that his engaged bride would become pregnant as a virgin with the, by the Holy Spirit with the child Jesus. And so that's the backstory. If you're here this morning, I want you to know and understand that, obviously. And so here's the deal. She's a very young girl, and, and she's pregnant, and she's not married, and, and Joseph and, and she are both aware that this is an act of God, a divine act of God, and no doubt her family is perhaps not quite as convinced, nor probably are her friends or his friends. So their married life, going to get started, was not what they would have anticipated, right? Not in the least. But she is pregnant, and he is going to take care of her. And so there's nine months to go through this pregnancy, and just at the time that she's about ready to deliver, what happens? Something happens that seems to be out of their control. They have to go far off to a distant place under tremendous penalty of the Roman government if they don't go. They don't have any choice. They have to make a journey, a very difficult journey with a pregnant wife, but they've got no choice. That's how this begins. A couple of things. Joseph was a carpenter by trade. Carpenters didn't build houses in those days. They primarily would build furnishings or, or plows or those kinds of things. You didn't have enough wood in that part of the world to build a house out of wood. So he would have built furnishings, tables, chairs, maybe some sort of a crib or a bed for that child, something for him to lay in. But if he's going to go to Bethlehem, he's not going to be able to take that with him. So whatever preparations they had begun to make at home for the arrival of this baby, they had to leave at home. And certainly, you know, with Mary's mother and, and sisters and aunts and friends that could have been there to help her, would have been anxious to help her, perhaps her grandmother even, they had to leave them all at home. So when they take this journey, it is a journey of incredible discomfort and, and, and disruption of their own plans. I know when we talk about the nativity scene, we have a tendency to make it seem so clean and pristine and sweet and perfect. And what I want you to understand this morning is it, it, in, from the standpoint of those involved in it, from looking at it, it was none of that. And I, I realize when we put on Christmas plays and we have cute little children that dress up like angels and dress up like Mary and Joseph and, and everything's clean and pristine and they dress up like animals. It just looks... But that's not what it was. In fact, so many things about this story, because, because we've seen it in movies, we've seen it in cartoons, we, we see it on Christmas stories, we hear it in Christmas songs that are not necessarily biblically based. Show me where the innkeeper is in this story. I, I would imagine some of you would have might have thought that there's actually an innkeeper in the Bible that says, I'm sorry, I don't have any room for you in my inn. There's not there. It's not there. There's no innkeeper who says, I'm sorry, you can sleep in my barn. I mean, culturally, we've assumed that's what's happened. We've also assumed that he was born in a, in a, in a, in a, little, in a little barn, sort of built for a family. <laughs> he was just born in this little barn. There wouldn't have been a barn. If anything, the animals would have been kept in a cave. They wouldn't have used wood to build a barn or a little shelter, just the perfect size. 
It would have been a cave. But listen again. Let me read it. Let's re- this, is the, this is the story from God's word of the birth of Jesus. Forget everything else you've seen on television, everything image you have on your Christmas, you know. And by the way, <laughs> the wise men weren't there. Are you ready for that? Hate to disappoint you. If you've got wise men in your, do we have them over there? No, they're not there. They may be down there. If, you, if, you've got, if you've got a nativity scene, I realize the wise men are the most attractive things in the nativity scene because they're the prettiest, you know. But if you've got your nativity scene in the living room, put the wise men in the dining room because they're on the way. Okay? How many times you see a picture of the wise men? And I know, I know we like to dress our kids up, and I know every year, every church I've ever pastored, they go, this is, you just get a thing with this, Clifton. You've got to get over it. But it's just like... No, we didn't have wise men at the manger. They came later. The star didn't direct them to the manger. The star directed them to the house where the child lived, under the age of two, but maybe a year old. It was later. It wasn't that night. The gospel tells us who was there that night. It was shepherds. It was not the wise men. And by the way, I'm getting way ahead of myself. How do you know there were three wise men? Because your nativity set comes with three wise men. Because the Christmas card says, three wise men. And because the hymn says, we three kings of Orient are. But you can look from Genesis to the map in the back, and it doesn't tell you there were three wise men. It tells you that wise men from the east came bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Could have been two, could have been 30. Literally, we don't know. And you say, well, is it all that important? Yeah, it kind of is when we begin to, 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 to let the culture determine what's really. We need to see what's really there. And we'll talk about the wise men in another Sunday. I'm not talking about them today. But we're going to go back and we're going to read this text again. And there's no innkeeper and there's no wise men. And if you want to look over in Matthew, Luke, and Mark to see if you can find them, they're not there either, the day of Jesus' birth. Here it is. So everyone, verse 3, went to his own town to be registered. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. I should have had a map here. You can see where it was. Down to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, in order to be registered with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So what do we know from the Scripture, not from tradition? What do we know? We know that... At the very moment she's to give birth, rather than to give birth where she lived, among her mother and her aunts and her grandmother and her sisters, in a place that no doubt uh, Joseph had prepared for them and probably even had built some sort of a crib for the child, at that moment, because of the government, because of registration, they had to take this long and dangerous journey. We know that. We know that when they get there, you know, she has no control over this. She's going to give birth. She's not going to be able to wait till she gets back home, which I know you know they were hoping. We can get down to Bethlehem. We can get registered. Hopefully, we can get back home. But it didn't work out that way. They get to Bethlehem, and while she was there, time came for her to give birth. And verse 7 says, Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, 
and she wrapped him up tightly in cloth. And don't use the word manger, okay? For most people, when we think of the word manger, we think of the little box that you lay Jesus in. And it's about the size of a baby. It's not a, it's that, no. The translation would be feed trough. It's a feed trough. Manger sounds wonderful, right? Away in a manger. How about away in a feed trough? It is a feed trough. That's what the word manger meant. Prior to Jesus laying in there, animals had been eating out of it. Think about that for a minute. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth, which would have been the tradition, and she laid him in a feed trough because there was no room, there was no guest room for them. Now, I'm, I'm going to share some things with you that um, these are not, let, this is not a matter of first, second, or third importance. If you want to disagree with me because it kind of blows your mind about your Christmas story, then I'm just your interim, and you're going to go to heaven anyway, and so it's going to be all right. But here's most likely what really takes place. He was from Bethlehem. His, all of his relatives were there, for goodness sakes. It's not like he's going to show up in Bethlehem and nobody's going to know him. Have you ever thought about that? That's his house and lineage is Bethlehem. So no doubt he probably went to the home of someone there who was one of his relatives. And they would have had a large guest room there. And everybody would have just laid out in the guest room. That's just, you know, they were just, just on the floor. Well, you can't do that if you're having a baby, right? So probably every house had some place for the animals, and in order for her to have some privacy, from the, there was no room in the guest room. Now, that version says guest room, which is a more appropriate word than the word in. It's not like they had five or six motels at the intersection when you entered Bethlehem in the first century. They did not. There was probably a guest room, and it was filled up with other people who had come from other places, and she was going to give birth that night. And so, most likely, for her to have some privacy, they just simply had to go behind the house to the cave area, whatever they had there, a little lean-to, whatever, where the animals were kept. And there, no doubt, Joseph tried to clean it up as much as he could, and get as much fresh hay and clean hay as he could and, and just do the best he could for her that night when she gave birth. Others have suggested it doesn't say that Jesus was born in a stable. It just says he was born that night. And it's possible even on, on the road there, maybe outside, and then they get to the guest house and there's no place for them, and so they put them in there. All of that simply to say this. It was not what either one of them had ever expected or wanted or dreamed of or hoped for. It was dark. There was no electricity. No matter what you say of it, it had to be dark that night. And no matter how they ended up in that cave or that place with the animals, whether it was because there was no room in the house that they were staying in or, or there was no whatever, they ended up, we do know they end up in a cave uh, which what, uh, uh, that would have been carved out of the, wood, the, 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 the rock or whatever where the animals... No doubt, that was the place. So there they are. 
She gives birth to her firstborn son in the nighttime, far away from home, not even in a house, but outside among the animals in some sort of shelter for the animals because for whatever reason, there was no room for them and whatever, but Luke's not real specific. But we are specific about this, that he was born in a place that they did not expect him to be born in a way that they had not planned for, away from her mother and her sisters, away from the place that, that, that Joseph had set up for them, in a very crowded and dark place in a city that was filled with people that had really no room for extra folks. There was very little privacy space anywhere for her to have this baby. And so they find this place where the animals are. He cleans it up as best as he can, puts as much fresh straw as he can in there. And the first place that the king of the universe, who created the whole world and holds it in place by its mighty power, the first night he sleeps in the feed trough of the animals. Let that sink in for just a little while. And then what happens? Well, the angels then, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but the angels then come to the shepherds who are in their fields keeping watch over their flock by night. You're just going to, you're going to hate me when this is over. It, It wasn't December. It just wasn't December. I'm just sorry. The shepherds did not watch their flocks in December. Nowhere in the Bible does it give us the date of Jesus' birth. Now, it's not that we're not supposed to celebrate his birth. Certainly we do. But the thing we know about is the resurrection. That's, that's, we celebrate that. That's why we gather every Sunday morning. See, here's the reality. Just buckle up. You can be completely unconverted. You can be completely uh, against... Every, the scripture, everything else, and you can just love the little story of Jesus in a manger because he doesn't threaten you, okay? Doesn't call, doesn't, but when you look at Jesus the man, you look at why he died because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. That begins to threaten us. That's an offense, all right? So that's why so much of the culture loves to talk about this and embrace this. You have to be quite aware of that. So here he is, probably not born in December because there were shepherds in the fields. And the first people that come to see Mary and Joseph's baby are not her parents, her friends, her siblings, her relatives. It's a bunch of shepherds, for goodness sakes, who've been out in the field. They, they, no doubt, and I'm not making this up, they probably smelt worse than the animals, Seriously. They were dirty and they were filthy and they, they lived in the fields with these animals and, and they were the last people on earth you would think that would, would show up at the birth of a baby. So here's this really odd picture. If, if, if God's going to come in the form of a human and be born, he, 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 the first thing that happens is this whole government registration thing and we got to travel this long distance. Then we get to this big, we get to this community and it's full of people and there's no place for any kind of privacy. And that's just the moment she has the baby. She doesn't have it at 10 o'clock in the morning. She has it in the nighttime when it's dark. And they have to go to some sort of cave, some sort of place where the animals are kept, clean out a feed trough that the animals had been eating in, lay that little baby in that feed trough. And the first people who show up to visit are some really dirty, grungy-looking shepherds. There's nothing about that that Mary would have dreamed would be the birth of her first child. 
Why does that matter? Well, let me ask you about your life. Did you ever experience any disappointments? Things ever not turn out the way you think they should? Do you ever have in your mind what your life should be like and what you're going to do, and then something happens and it doesn't do that and it doesn't do that and it begins? That is why he came this way, to identify with all of us, because the nature of this world we live in until this Jesus comes again and makes everything right is a broken, messed up world. And we are all familiar with disappointment. We're all familiar with sorrow. We're all familiar with brokenness. And here we see that Jesus is born in the nighttime, in a place that they would never have chosen, surrounded by people they would never have chosen. But the scripture also says that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. There's this wonderful sense, I just... Wish you, I wish I could grasp it even more than I do. And I wish you could grasp it. That in the midst of everything that in, now I'm not saying anything went wrong. It's exactly, listen to me, look at me and listen to me. Everything that happened that night was exactly preordained by God before the foundation of the world. It was not an accident. But from the standpoint of Mary and Joseph, it would have been possible to look at that and say, this is not the way to start out, right? And yet, there's something about it. The scripture says that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She cherished every moment of it. Why? Because Jesus was there. I want you to know what this story teaches us as much as anything is this. Doesn't matter what kind of chaos you're going through. Doesn't matter what kind of hurt you're going through. Doesn't matter what kind of, of challenges you're going through. If, if you know Christ and Jesus is there, you're not alone in it. And you can, you can ponder him in your heart. And it, you can see that his plan is in all of it. Now, that's hard for us to grasp. I get that. Especially if you're someone like me who tends to be pessimistic anyway. Who tends to be discouraged anyway. And yet we see that that's where Jesus was born, in the middle of the night. But let me tell you something about, let me tell you something about the nighttime. Some of you are in a nighttime. Some of you are in dusk, just heading to night. You can see it coming. There's something out there, and you know it's coming. Some of you are in the middle of the night. It's never been darker in your entire life. Some of you... You've been through a nighttime, and you're beginning to see a little bit of daylight, and you're coming out. Listen, folks, hear me and hear me well. Until Jesus comes again, that is the nature of the life we live. It is tough. It is challenging. It is difficult. It was for God himself when he was born in that environment. And his life didn't get any easier, right? We follow it. Until finally he was brutally beaten and crucified. Let me tell you something about the nighttime. Let me tell you something about the nighttime. My God works really well in the night. My God works really well in the night. Don't fear the night. My God works really well in the night. Jacob, his life wasn't worth much. He was pretty much focused on himself and, and uh, his, his greed and those kinds of things. And remember what happened? 
took everything he owned, sent it across the river, and that night he did what? He wrestled with an angel all night long. (laughs) And when he got up the next morning, he walked with the limp, but the scripture says he walked with God, because my God works well in the night. When they took Daniel, who refused to bow to the king and, and would only pray to God, and they threw him in the lion's den that night, and they expected the next morning that he would be devoured. They woke up the next morning, and he was there, and the lions were asleep because my God works really well in the night. Paul and Silas were in that jail in Philippi facing more persecution and more beatings and perhaps even to be killed. And, and as they were there at midnight in that jail, not where they wanted to be, and they were there because they were being obedient to God. They were not there out of disobedience because they were being obedient to God. At midnight, as they were singing and praising God, uh, a, a, an earthquake came and that the ground shook and that jail was open. And not only were they freed, but the jailer and his family came to faith in Jesus Christ. Because I want you to know something, church. My God works really well in the night. When the disciples were crossing that Sea of Galilee in that terrible storm, and they were frightened to death, and they thought they were going to die, and in the middle of the darkness, they see a figure walking on the water, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's I, and they saw who he was, and the the, the lake became still. My God works really well in the night. And then when they buried Jesus dead, laid him in that tomb, on that morning, that Sunday morning when the ladies came to prepare his body more, he was gone because my God works really well in the night. And the scripture even says that this one who's gone, Jesus, he's going to come back. And how's he going to come back? He's going to come back as a what? As a thief in the night. My God works really well in the night. I want you to know this morning, you don't have to be afraid of the night. Why? Because Jesus is there with you. He's already been there before you. When you think of Christmas, don't think of everything being perfect, everything being exactly like it ought to be. You think of Christmas as everything can be chaotic. It doesn't matter. As long as Jesus is there, you can keep all these things and ponder them in your heart. And if you're in the dusk right now and you're headed to a night, be it a, a physical problem, a spiritual issue, an emotional issue, a relationship issue, a financial issue, if you will stay focused on the Lord, you will see over and over again how God does some of his most amazing miracles in our lives in the middle of the night. He's the God who does not leave us or forsake us, but comes to us. The greater your problem, the more you'll feel his presence. As Corey Ten Boom says, the deeper the pit, the more grace God gives you to fill it up. I'm not suggesting it's easy. It's not. It's hard. We have to battle it. But I'm suggesting there is joy that comes when? In the morning. My God works well in the night. Joy comes in the morning. There's a reason Jesus was born in a barn, laid in a feed trough in a city outside of his, where his parents lived in the middle of the night to help you and I realize that as chaotic and as difficult and as challenging as our life is, Jesus is there with us. He identifies with us. And there's always a morning that's coming. 
always a morning that's coming. One of my dearest friends in the world is a pastor named Mark Halleck in Denver. And uh, Mark means a great deal to me, young pastor in his 30s that God has richly blessed beyond anybody's real imagination for what God could do such a young man. He took a church of about 30 people, and God, for his own purpose, grew that church to seven or 800. But more than that, Mark has been part of planting 19 or 20 and replanting that many churches across the, mid, across the mountain west. About two weeks ago, he has a 14-year-old son named Eli. And about two weeks ago, uh, on, a, uh, on a Sunday, Eli is a healthy young man, played basketball. He developed a stomach ache, like so many kids do. But it got worse, and so they took him to the uh, emergency med clinic. Now, this is, a, this is one of the most gifted pastors I, I know and, and one of the most godly men I know. And when they took him to the emergency clinic, they go, well, maybe it's his appendix. Just keep an eye on it. If it gets worse, let's bring him to the emergency room. Well, it got much worse that night. They took him to the emergency room on Monday a week ago and um, realized in a very short order after doing some initiative tests that he had some very aggressive stomach cancer. He's going to be in the hospital at best about six months. Uh, He's struggling with nausea. He's struggling with pain. Um, He's struggling with the chemotherapy. Um, He's a very, very sick young man. So Mark posted this yesterday evening. We live in a beautiful but broken world where things are not what they are supposed to be. Pain is real. Pain is here. Suffering is real. Sickness, disease, tragedy, they're all real. But hope is also real. And so is grace, and so is God. As I continue to wrestle with the realities of pain and suffering in our world and in our lives in light of Eli's fight against cancer, I find myself consistently asking God to help me, to help me respond rightly to the painful journey we are currently walking, to respond in a way that fuels hope and peace and even joy in my son and in my family, to respond in a way that encourages others, to respond in a way that honors and brings glory to Christ my King. I don't want to waste my pain. I really don't. Here's the understatement of the year. I need the Lord's help if this is going to happen. If I'm not going to waste my pain, if I'm going to respond rightly to this trial, I need the supernatural grace and power of God working big time in my heart and my mind. How you and I respond to trials and hardships in our lives matters. How we respond to pain and suffering can either lead us deeper to trust Jesus or it can have the opposite effect, leading us to deeper anger and bitterness toward God. As a pastor... I've seen both examples over the years. So here's the question. How should I respond? How should I respond to the pain and suffering that is sure to come our way this side of heaven? I want to stop right there. And I want to say that we serve a God who understands pain and suffering. 
a Jesus who was born into some very difficult circumstances that we just talked about, not in a beautiful, clean little place, looks like on a Hallmark card, but in a cave, in the dark, in a feed trough. And then his life didn't get any easier after that. He's a man acquainted with sorrows and grief in all ways like we are. Jesus knows what it's like to be human and all the pain and all the sorrow, all the suffering, all the challenges that go with that. Your God knows that. Let me introduce you, Mark says, to one of my mentors. His name is J.C. Ryle, a pastor from the 19th century in England. He wrote a great deal about suffering as he experienced much suffering in his own life. Ryle lays out seven specific ways God desires to use suffering in our lives for his glory, our joy, and for the good of others. Number one, suffering is there to help teach us that there is a world beyond the grave. The world in which we now live is not our real home. Heaven awaits us, and in heaven, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more misery, there'll be no more cancer, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more sin. There is another world beyond this one, and suffering reminds us of that. Suffering also helps us to see the emptiness of this world and its utter, this is so important, its utter inability to satisfy our deepest needs. While something may satisfy today, one phone call from the doctor can take all of that away. While something may satisfy today, one misstep by a loved one can take all of that away. It helps us to see the real emptiness in this world as far as its utter inability to satisfy our deepest needs. Number three, it sends us to God's word. Suffering should drive us to the one place where we can find the words of truth in the midst of chaos and confusion, the God-breathed Holy Scriptures. Only here do we find the true words of hope, peace, life, and promise that come directly from God's mouth to your heart. Number four, suffering makes us pray. Or as Ryle put it, too many people I fear never pray at all, or they only rattle off a few hurried words every morning and evening without thinking about what they do. But prayer often becomes a reality when we are in the very shadow of death. How true these words have been for me, Mark says. You don't realize God is all you need until God is all you have. Whether we have this or not is reflected in our desperation or our lack thereof of prayer. Number five, suffering makes us better at feeling and sympathizing toward others. It's amazing how God can use our own suffering to soften us toward others and their suffering. Our pain often makes us more loving toward people and understanding. Number six, it helps us to learn how to find joy in the Lord even in the midst of what feels like hopeless circumstances. When we read James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of all kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfast has a full effect that you may be perfect and complete. In light of this passage, Ryle writes these words, beware of fretting. This is me. This is to me. Ryle's writing these words to me. Beware of fretting, murmuring, complaining, and giving away to an impatient spirit. Regard your suffering as a blessing in disguise, as a good and not an evil, a friend and not an enemy, 
No doubt we should all prefer to learn spiritual lessons in the school of ease, but rest assured, listen, that God knows better than we do how to teach us. And the light of the last day will show that there was true meaning and need in all of your pain. It's a powerful statement. And number seven, it ultimately draws us to conform to Christ. God uses suffering to draw us close to Christ, to create in us a greater desire for Jesus above all things. He uses our suffering to conform us to Jesus, to shape us, to change us. The bottom line is this. The Lord does not want us to waste our pain. We shouldn't want to waste it either. And then Mark ends with this prayer. Lord, please use the trials and suffering in our lives to transform and conform us into the men and women you created us to be for your glory and our joy and for the good of others. I read that last night when he posted it. And here's a man sitting, not getting ready to preach to 800 people this morning, but sitting in a hospital room with his young son who's desperately ill and incredibly uncomfortable. And as a parent, you know how that can just crush you. But what great wisdom that God has given him in that. And then when I thought about the Christmas story and how it's a story not of everything turning out perfectly for those involved, but looking somewhat chaotic and out of control. And yet there is God in the midst of it. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. If you're a redeemed child of God, if you followed him in salvation, he knows who you are. He knows your life. He has it laid out. And this side of heaven, we're not going to understand why all the pain and sorrow and suffering come. But we do know this. Jesus is here with us. He doesn't leave you alone in your suffering. He runs to you in your suffering. He will never leave you and forsake you. And the suffering will not win. The suffering will not win. It will not. It's only here briefly. It's only a fog. It's only a vapor. All eternity awaits us, and there'll be no more suffering because Jesus came and suffered it all for us. And yes, we can gather on Sunday morning, and we can, we can bear one another's burdens, and we can mourn with those who mourn, and grieve with those who grieve, and walk together through this very difficult place, as David calls, the valley of the shadow of death. And it's not easy. And when we think life should be easy and should be simple, we, we miss it. It's even in the difficulties and the challenges that oftentimes we're drawn to a deeper understanding of who God is, and a deeper joy in Him that will sustain us for all eternity. The Christmas story is the story of humanity. Things didn't turn out the way that young family wanted, but it turned out exactly the way God wanted, and he was with them through all of it. Your life may not turn out exactly. It probably won't. It won't turn out the way you want it to turn out. But if you will be obedient to Christ and follow him and subordinate your life to him, and as as my friend Mark says, learn not to waste your suffering, but to use your suffering as an opportunity to learn more about God, to learn more about his grace, to lean more into him. And I love when he said this, to realize this world does not offer you happiness. The only happiness we have is in God and in the future. What a great truth. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.